Good morning. morning. Welcome, everyone. So, um, it was good to have Paul with us last week, wasn't it? From India. Um, It's really good to hear what he's involved with there. And um, I will ask him if there are any particular projects that we can sort of support him in. So, um, we'll let you know on that, whether there's anything that comes up we'll be able to sort of pray into and perhaps give to as well. So, um, we'll we'll, um, we'll let you know. So, he didn't mention last week, but actually he's getting married in August. Um, and Stephanie and I will hopefully go out to his wedding. Nothing booked, but um, we're hoping to go out there, so that'll be good too. So as you, I'm sure, aware, Easter Day is 17th of April this year, so just four weeks away now. And so we're going to use these next few weeks to um, look forward to this time of year. It is, of course, the central point of our Christian calendar, the time when we specifically remember Jesus' death and his resurrection um, on the, um, three days later, and, um, and we think about it particularly and rejoice in the implications and, uh, of that uh, historic event. And so we're going to start that today as we're um, going back into, and I'm going to go back today into the book of Genesis, and we're going to see something of why Easter was necessary. Um, but I also want to look back this morning, just as I start, at the series we've just finished, so, and the series on imperfect people in the hands of a perfect God. Because I think there's a real natural link between those two things, isn't there? I think Easter is surely the ultimate expression of um, how a perfect God reached out his hands to an imperfect people. Um, So I hope you've enjoyed that series, and I know I have. Um, And I hope that some of the sort of central themes that have come up week after week have started to sink in. So, you know, we've looked at a variety of people, haven't we, over these last weeks, and people that we might have thought would have been overlooked by God because of their sin or their lack of ability or their status or their wealth or their gender or their age or their circumstances. And we've seen that actually God has used these people to play a part in his purposes. Rather than rejecting these people, God actually chose them. And for people like uh, many of us, people have a natural tendency to to discount ourselves on the basis of our perceived weaknesses. There are clearly some important lessons for us to learn. One which I think you'll have heard more or less explicitly each week is that what this means is that none of us are excluded from being used by God. We all have a part to play in God's purposes So there's a practical challenge there. What does that mean for me? How am I making myself available to God for him to use me? And that's a challenge that doesn't stop just because we finished the series. But there's another theme which I hope has been apparent too. And that is that God doesn't view us in the same way that we often view ourselves. See, we look at us, many of us, uh, ourselves, many of us, and we see our weaknesses and our sin, and our failings. And so we discount ourselves. But God looks at us, and he sees our weaknesses, and our sins, and our failings. And actually, he sees them much more clearly than we do. But he doesn't discount us. In fact, he chooses us. You might remember these verses from 1 Corinthians. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, 
to bring to nothing the things that are. See, God knows you and God knows me. He knows our weaknesses and our sin and our rebellion. But he chose us anyway. And if God chose us, then he's for us. And if he's for us, as Paul reminds us in Romans 8, then who can be against us? We are secure in the hands of a perfect God. We are significant and we are loved. And as you reflect on this series of imperfect people in the hands of a perfect God, as I hope you might, one of the key things I hope you will remember is that God's perfection is far greater than our imperfection. His strength is greater than our weakness. His love is great enough even to cover our sin and our rebellion. And that, of course, brings us to Easter, doesn't it? Because implicit in what I've just said is that there is a problem here that needs to be addressed. The fact is that as human beings, we are weak and sinful and rebellious. See, another verse that reminds us, that speaks us about God choosing us is Ephesians and chapter 2. And here Paul reminds his readers that, like everyone else, we were dead in our rebellion and our sin. We were separated from God. We were deserving of his wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Romans 5 tells us that God showed his love for us in that even while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. See, we are imperfect people, but we have been chosen. Not because of our inherent loveliness. Not because we deserved it in any way. But because the love and mercy of a perfect God was sufficiently great to find a way to overcome the problem of our sin and our rebellion. So as we start to look then towards Easter, I want us to take us back today to the book of Genesis to see where things began. Genesis 1, verse 1, as you all know very well, I'm sure, says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But actually, in the New Testament, in John chapter 1, we go back even a little bit further. It says there, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And just to be clear, when John here talks about the word, he's talking about Jesus. So in the beginning was God. And not God just as some lonely, um, empty noun floating in the nothingness. But God as community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, but three persons. This was a God of diversity but in perfect unity. A God of perfect love. A God of perfect, harmonious relationship. And this is important because one of the key themes of Easter, not the only one, but one of them, is that of of relationship restored. I've mentioned already in uh, Romans 5, in this chapter Paul explains how Jesus at the cross reversed the consequences of what Adam did in Genesis chapter 3. In this section, two words keep cropping up, and they are reconciliation and righteousness. Well, reconciliation, we all know. When uh, two people are reconciled, when when they are brought back together again after a time of separation. And righteousness in this context is, is very similar, but with a more specific meaning. It means being made right with God. 
being brought back into right relationship with God. So one of the key consequences of Jesus' death and resurrection was that it allowed for the reconciliation of man with God. It made restored relationship a possibility. And that relationship finds its, its root in the very character and nature of God. So that's why we start here, right at the beginning, with the triune God, where perfect and loving relationship are right at the centre. Because it is this kind of God who brought the whole universe into being. He spoke and the world was created. He spoke again and he created life, the plants and the fish and the birds and the animals. And he pronounced it all good. It was this loving and relational God who after it made everything else said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So we're told God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, interesting, we've mentioned that three times at least this morning already. God created man in his own image. A speaker I heard recently um, said that the story we live in is the story we live out. And what do you mean by that? What he was saying was what we believe about who we are, where we came from, and where we're going matters. It will change the way that we live. And this is part of our story. Men and women were created by God. And they were created because God chose to create them. See, we're not here by accident. And I know that's not all we're taught. But what we're taught isn't true. The universe didn't just appear by accident. We're not just here because of some chance sequence of events. We are here because God wanted us to be here. So we have significance. And that's not just true in a general sort of sense. That's true for every individual here today. You are significant, each one of you. You were born because God wanted you to exist. He knows you. And he loves you. But there's more. See, we were created in the image of God. And what does that mean? Well, there's lots of things we could say and don't have really time. But just let me mention a few things. Clearly, it doesn't mean that we were made so we looked like God, so we can get that out of the way. But what do we know about God that we've looked at this morning? Well, I've said that God exists as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three persons in perfect relationship. And this is one way in which we, which we resemble God. We are made to be relational. Able to relate to each other. And crucially, able to relate to God. And the relationship the members of the Godhead have together is one of perfect love. And we were made so that we can love and be loved. Both by each other and again, and the most gloriously, we were made so that we could love and be loved by God. This was God's purpose for us, that we could share in his love. I mean, there's lots of other things, but in, in, just in this verse we've looked at, God made a choice to create. And he's given us the ability to make choices, real choices that have real consequences. Once again, we see this makes us significant people. What we choose What we do really matters for ourselves and for others, for now and into the future, for good and for bad. 
Again, God created, and we resemble him in this as well, and that we've been given the ability to create. We can be truly innovative. Using the materials we have to hand, we can make things that didn't exist before. And that might be music or poetry or art. Or it might be a machine or a garden or a bookcase. We've been made to be creative. And the list could go on. But the point I'm trying to make is that to say that we are made in the image of God is a big deal. Everything that God created was good. But men and women were on a different level altogether. We were made so that we could have meaningful relationship with God. We were made so that we could love God and we could enjoy him forever. And if I can't communicate just how amazing that is, which I don't think I can, well, I know I can't, I just can't grasp it myself. I just don't have a big enough imagination, but it is glorious. So man was made to enjoy this wonderful world, to look after it, to work in it, and to talk about it all and enjoy it with God and share in his pleasure and delight in his presence. And that's what happened. God made a beautiful garden for Adam and Eve to live in and actually walked in it with them. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for him, uh, for those who love him. And we can say the same about this time back in Genesis chapter 2. It was glorious beyond our ability to imagine. And that is what we were made for. But then, of course, we come to Genesis chapter 3. I'm just going to read the first few verses, first eight verses of that chapter. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to them, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some also to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. Read that again. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. It must be one of the most tragic verses in the Bible. How had it come to this? Well, there's a lot that could be said, and 20 minutes is too short. So I'm just going to focus on what I think is one of the key things. So first of all, I think we've got to just put out of our heads the idea this is just a little story about a talking snake um, offering a nice piece of fruit or a vengeful God who overreacted to a minor indiscretion. See, this is a story about relationship and trust. See, God made Adam and Eve so they could love him 
and enjoy his presence. But God wanted this relationship to have depth and meaning. He wanted the love of Adam and Eve to be freely given. He wanted them to be able to express their trust in him. So in a garden that was full of good things to eat, good fruit to eat, God put just one that was out of bounds. I don't know if you ever thought about this. If God knew that Adam and Eve eating of the fruit of this particular tree was going to cause such devastation, well, why did he put it there? If it had to be there, why didn't he put a fence around it? Well, the reason is that God didn't want Adam and Eve's love for him to be forced. He wanted them to choose to love him. It was just a small thing, but God was saying, I want you to trust me in this. I want you to demonstrate your love for me by being obedient in this one small thing. A French philosopher once said that someone who wants to be loved isn't interested in a passion that is mechanical or forced. Such love is cheap and worthless. Closer to home, a verse in one of Christine's poems says much the same thing. He gives us the freedom to choose. Blessed us all with free will from the start. We can choose him or simply refuse. He wants to be loved from the heart. God gave Adam and Eve that choice. But as we know, they decided they wanted to do their own thing. They chose to act independently. They chose to believe the lie that they would be better off if they acted autonomously, going their own way, doing their own thing. They chose to believe the lie that God's word wasn't true, that God wasn't trustworthy, that somehow they knew better. And before we're too harsh on them, haven't we all done the same? And suddenly everything was different. And I don't know if you've been in this situation where you've done something or you've said something and immediately you know you can't undo it, but you wish you would give anything if you could because you know how bad the consequences are going to be. I know that feeling exactly. That feeling of horror, of devastation, of loss. And thankfully... And my mind has blanked the actual things that I must have done to give rise to those feelings so I can't share them with you, which is probably a good thing all round. But you know, there's nothing that we have experienced that can begin to compare to what Adam and Eve must have felt at that point. There's no guilt or shame that we can have ever known that can begin to compare with their guilt or shame. In that moment, the darkness fell. And they knew their sin, their weakness, their failure, and their nakedness. And they did the only thing they could do. They hid from the presence of God. They hid from the presence of the one who had made them and lavished them with love. That beautiful, precious relationship was broken. They were too ashamed to be in God's presence and there was nothing they could do about it. See, in the moment they listened to the serpent and ate the fruit, they died. In that moment, they handed over the authority that God had given them to the enemy. And all the forces of evil were unleashed on the world. Within just a few verses of this, we read of the first murder. And the world that we know was born. 
with all its pain, evil, suffering, and death. And in the light of this, what did Adam and Eve do? Well, they sewed together fig leaves to cover themselves. Such a futile gesture. Like holding up an umbrella to try and protect yourself against an avalanche, or, or building a wall of sand on the beach to try and hold back the tide. It was hopeless and pathetic. But you know what? It's what men and women have been doing ever since, trying to make their own effort to cover up their guilt and their shame, trying through their works to make themselves right with God. But it's as hopeless now for us as it was for them then. And you know, God could have just left them there. <clears throat> he gave a choice, and the choice was made. He could quite justly have said, well, now you live with the consequence of your actions. But he didn't. At the end of chapter 3, we read that God made clothes for Adam and Eve from the skin of an animal and covered them. See, God, even here, right in chapter 3, showed mercy and covered their guilt and their shame. It wasn't a final solution, but it was a promise. God was saying, I won't abandon you. I will reverse the consequences of what you have done. But there will be a cost. Here, an animal was killed. The first time that had happened... But this wasn't enough. It, it was just a symbol of what God would one day do. In Romans 5, again, we read that sin entered the world through one man, and death came through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all have sinned. And that's what we've been looking at this morning. But it also says that Christ died. He was the reality that the animal sacrifice pointed towards. And just as the result of one man's sin was condemnation for all men, so this act of righteousness was, uh, the result of this act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. So today, we leave Adam and Eve facing the consequence of what they've done. They're expelled from the garden. No longer can they walk with God in the same way. And they and all that will follow them will face death and suffering. Even the world itself is caught up in the fallout and will suffer decay and destruction. The beauty and the peace and the life and the harmony and the goodness, and most importantly, the glorious presence of God and relationship with him are all gone. But there is the promise. The promise that one day this would be reversed. And I'm going to finish this morning with the prefix re, re meaning back. Because God's promise is that he will turn things back. One day he will redeem his people. They will be reconciled to him. Relationship will be restored. Even the world will be renewed and recreated. See, right here at the beginning, chapter 3, man unleashed death and destruction on the world, ruining everything that God in chapters 1 and 2 had made so good. In the book of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, Jesus says, See, I make all things new. And that is our hope and the promise that we live under. And it's all made possible because of what happened at Easter. And next week, Keith will pick up the story. Ha, 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 ha.